Hello and welcome to the third series of the Igniting Change podcast. It's a different and more challenging world in which we find ourselves this time around, so we wanted to reflect the challenges of just surviving in the COVID-19 era and what the Black Lives Matter movement has meant to some of our First Nations people. Igniting Change hasn't stopped working to make this period easier for those doing it tough, nor will it. Yes, we're all in this together, but for some, making it to the other side is just the start of the battle. Today, our guest is Linda Fox, Igniting Change board member and Planet Wheeler Foundation grants manager. Hi, Linda. Hi, Sally. Good to be here. Thank you for joining us. I'm going to start by getting you to outline the sort of work that you do at the moment. You wear a few hats. Can you go through a bit of a description of your roles for us? Well, first of all, I'm an Igniting Change board member and I've been on the board of Igniting Change for about two years. But my daily work life is split half between the Planet Wheeler Foundation and half between Partners for Equity, which was set up by Planet Wheeler and two other family foundations. At Planet Wheeler, we have about 60 projects internationally that we support from East and West Africa, across Southeast Asia, and ranging from health and education through to livelihoods. How did Planet Wheeler Foundation start? How did it come to be? So Planet Wheeler grew out of the Lonely Planet travel books, which most people are familiar with in Australia. Tony Maureen Wheeler had a long history of philanthropy when they owned the Lonely Planet company. And a lot of the projects supported by the foundation then were visited by the authors and they'd come back and say, we visited this fantastic school or this orphanage and uh, a percentage of the profits of Lonely Planet went to, to the foundation then. When Tony Maureen sold the company about 12 years ago, they created the Planet Wheeler Foundation. And it's really continued on in the same vein, supporting projects in the developing world. Although there is also a focus on human rights and refugees here in Australia and an overlap in igniting change and that sort of work. The umbrella is, is very large that is covered by the Planet Wheeler Foundation and also igniting change. But what do you think are the key areas that COVID-19 has affected your work in both of those roles? I think Igniting Change has done what Igniting Change always does. They got straight on the phone to every one of the projects they support and said, what do you need? How can we help? And that's ranged from providing computer laptops, food deliveries in some instances, cards for internet access. Really, Igniting Change has just been there and done whatever people need. Probably the biggest need in Australia has been from the refugee population, from people who fall within the cracks and, you know, not available for job keeper or job seeker. Internationally, quite a different story. Most of the countries we work in have no safety net. So there is no job keeper or no job seeker and there is no homeschooling, no possibility for kids to go to school. So most of the countries we work in, school stops for the year and the children have no education. What do they do? Are there any programs at all for the children or are they just left at home with their parents? So it's a pretty wide range of um, of different countries that we work in and different responses. I mean, I'm always surprised that people treat Africa as one country and, you know, no more one country than Europe is or anywhere else. And there's been different responses in each country. I think I primarily look after the East and West African projects for Planet Wheeler, so I can sort of talk to those more than any other. And in most of those places, school has shut down and there is nothing for young people to do. There's no internet access or availability for any sort of homeschooling at all. So that is a year without education and sadly a year with increasing amounts of pregnancies. That's what we're hearing from people on the ground. Enormous amounts of pregnancies. There was a report out of Kenya in June that there was four 4,000 additional pregnancies in one area in Nairobi alone in the first you know, half of the year. Wow. 
In addition to that, has there been an increase in crime as well? Again, it's hard to generalise between places. So we have a number of projects in Uganda, in Kenya, in Tanzania, Malawi, and there's been a curfew and a complete lockdown then. And what we're finding is the biggest problem is a lack of access to healthcare services. So there's a, uh, a lockdown. There's no public transport, for example, in Uganda. People can't go anywhere. In Kenya, you're locked into your district and you can't leave. So pregnant mothers can't go to hospital to deliver. You can't go and take your child for vaccinations. There is no ability to get your TB and anti-malarial medications. And people who do get sick are frightened to go to hospital. I mean, I've heard a number of people say they're more frightened of the police and military than they are of getting COVID. Mm. And the feeling is if you go to hospital and you're sick, then you're going to be locked up somewhere. Linda, you started out as a lawyer. How does a lawyer, reasonably high-powered one, move from that world into the world of not-for-profit? I'm incredibly lucky. I've got the job of my dreams finally. I I did spend some time as a a lawyer in a large city firm and then I spent 15 years with a fund manager doing their legal and compliance work. And as part of that job, I set up an employee philanthropy fund, very generously by the owners, and also looked after the owners' families, private family foundation. And through that work, that's how I was introduced to Igniting Change, originally 10 years ago and actually met the team at Planet Wheeler Foundation as well because we had a lot of projects in common. So incredibly blessed is the answer to become from law lawyer to the not-for-profit world. But why does this type of work interest you? The Planet Wheeler stuff's particularly hardcore. The Igniting Change stuff can be as well. What's drawn you to it? I grew up myself in a housing commission estate in the far western suburbs of Sydney, so I always had a strong interest in social justice. Why am I drawn to it? Uh, Because the need is so great. You know, we can't go to Africa and see people who have no running water, no electricity, living in slums and not want to do anything. And I'm blessed to be able to work with Planet Wheeler who has resources to do something. Linda, the Black Lives Matter movement has swept the world. What sort of impact did it have, if any, in Africa? Where we're seeing the impact is in charities which have Western founders or leadership. So a number of the organisations we support were originally founded usually by Americans who've gone to Mali or to Togo or to Senegal and set up a charity. And it's usually run out of the US, based in Boston, and the work is being done on the ground. What we're seeing now is those founders and those boards questioning the diversity of their boards and their leadership teams. And I think that's a fantastic thing. At Planet Wheeler, like Igniting Change, believe strongly you should never have a conversation without the person you're speaking about in the room. For example, you don't speak about homelessness solutions without people who have been homeless. And at Planet Wheeler, we have what we call a grassroots portfolio, which is about backing local leaders. We you know, believe really strongly that African leaders know the solution to their own problems. There's some statistic, and I can't give you the exact numbers, but something like 1% of international aid goes to Africa, to African-led organisations, which I just think is appalling. We've got about 40% of our projects are locally led, so the solutions have come from the teams on the ground. Black Lives Matter is, is tied into that in a way, it's giving an agency to the people who, who are living the issues. Well, it's the same sort of thing that Children's Ground is trying to achieve in our country, giving the responsibility for the education and the entire livelihood of, of First Nations people back to First Nations people. Absolutely. And I think that's a really good example. I mean, what I love about Children's Ground, it's a holistic solution from the bottom up. And every single African organisation I work with that's locally led has the same idea. You know, the Western-led, the ones coming from above and go, let's sort out vaccines or let's sort out one program. 
but there's a wonderful woman called Wendo who runs a program, a project called Dandelion Africa, right in the western outskirts of Kenya on Uganda border. And she said to me once, there's no point talking to me about healthcare solutions if I'm hungry, or there's no point talking about to me education if, I, if my kids are dying. And every one of her projects is interrelated. And they're basically they're running a healthcare project, but they also have livelihoods project for the women and help them with market access. I had the most heartbreaking conversation with her a couple of weeks ago, and there's lots more um, child abuse in the lockdown, of course. And mm. there was a little four-year-old boy that had been severely abused by his stepfather and was ended up in the police station. And window took him a phone, you know, a home for him. They just don't focus on one thing. You have to deal with the community as a whole. Children's Ground gets that right, and so do a lot of locally led organisations. It's encouraging, but it, I, I guess the spotlight needs to shine on that a lot more, and and the issues, the multiple issues that they're dealing with there. And, yeah. and you get a lot of pushback for it, and I'm always surprised. Planet Wheeler belongs to a group of international funders called the Big Bang Philanthropy Group, and we had a meeting in London last year, and a couple of us were talking about the importance of, of supporting locally led organisations and a lot of the foundations push back on it and mm. people said you know it's our money and we should decide how it's spent these are big US based foundations so what seems to me the bleeding obvious there's not a lot of agreement around it necessarily. What's been the most challenging part of the whole COVID-19 experience for you personally? Personally I find it really hard not to be swimming that's my relaxation and I'm, Ditto. Right <laughs> so I'm looking forward to that first dive into the pool again. How much do you think that this experience will change the collective us? How much do you think we are going to change, if at all? I think we must change. I mean, architecture changed after the first plague, uh, the Spanish flu. I think we will change. I mean, I don't know how. I and mean, we've been talking at Planet Wheel about how our work might look different in a couple of years' time. You know, the need for livelihoods projects and food security and how food security and climate change intersects with, you know, poverty reduction and other, other smarter ways of doing things. I mean, I think there's a lot of unknowns out there. Personally, I hope it will make people think about climate change more and there'll be a bigger groundswell of pressure on the government to do something about the Paris targets and there won't be any more nonsense about gas-led recovery. That's my personal hope. In terms of the Black Lives movement, do you think that sense of outrage that is still sweeping throughout the world with every death at the hands of police, I guess, that that will change the way we deal with each other? I don't know. I mean, I hope so, but... I don't know what's different this time that hasn't been different other times. And the same with Aboriginal deaths in custody. The spotlight shone again. You know, is anything going to change? I don't know. hope so. And do you think that the way we work in terms of not always having to be at the office, not having to travel, the technology like we're using right now, it has the capacity to, to make people's lives, like it's a lot easier? Yes, but I don't think, again, that changes any different. I started working as a young lawyer in 1985. I had to wear a suit. I couldn't wear trousers. I called the boss Mr and Mrs. You know, that wasn't that long ago and things have changed enormously. There were no computers at that time on people's desks, no mobile phones. I think the changes have been extraordinary and continuous and always are. So I think it's easy to look in this bubble and say, wow, this is a huge change where we're you know, working more from home or flexible working. But we've been heading that way anyway. And there's enormous changes that continue to happen all the time. I mean, we don't even know what five years is going to look like. And five years ago would have been different again. Yeah, well, who even knows about five days or, or five weeks at this stage. But Linda, it's been a joy to talk to you today. I'd just like to say that you do amazing work and you probably don't often get recognised for that. So thank you so much for the work that you do on behalf of all of us at Igniting Change. And I'm sure that everyone who listens will be fascinated to hear your insights. We look forward to catching up soon. Thanks a lot, Sita. That's it for this Igniting Change podcast. 
If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to press subscribe to ensure you don't miss future episodes. Thanks for listening. And remember, see the person, not the label.